Acts chapter 22 is where we're going to be at today. While you're finding your place, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. And we do thank you for the day that you've given us, Lord. And we thank you for the uh, time that we have to be in church. We thank you for the ones who's gathered out today. And Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And we ask you, Lord, just for your blessings upon our time together, upon our study of your word. I pray, Lord, that it'll be uh, encouraging and profitable to us, Lord. We just pray, ask you that you'd be with those who are still on their way out this morning. I pray with those who are uh, working, traveling, sick, whatever it may be, that aren't able to be with us. I just pray you'd watch over them. And Lord, I just pray you'd help us as a church to be a witness in this community. Help us, Lord, to, uh, to just to shine the gospel light to those who are around us. We just thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you for loving us and for taking care of us. Thank you, Lord, so much for, uh, most of all, for salvation. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are in the book of Acts, and uh, we've been following uh, Paul's ministry, his life, and he has went on three missionary journeys. He has uh, spread the gospel throughout the Middle East and all the way over into Europe throughout Greece. And uh, he has taken up an offering from those who are in the Gentile nations to take back to Jerusalem and uh, to help those in Jerusalem that are impoverished because those who have gotten saved have been uh, rejected by family, by society, and all these different things. There's been persecution and things. And so he's bringing this uh, offering back to Jerusalem, and his entire journey there, he was constantly being warned that whenever he got to Jerusalem, that he was going to uh, be arrested, imprisoned, mistreated. And so he got to Jerusalem, he uh, gave an update to the church at Jerusalem, and they weren't really all that supportive and exciting about or excited about the things that he told them. Uh, they weren't all that thrilled about the Gentile believers. And anyway, he gave them this offering, and there's not a whole lot said about that. But they did require him to kind of help stave off the the rumors that were going around, to go and participate in a uh, unnecessary ritual just to show that he was still following the law and he was still Jewish and that he wasn't advocating for people to uh, leave their cultural norms and their faith. And so whenever he does this, he's seen in the, the temple, and his enemies take this as an opportunity to raise up a riot against him. And so they, they all come upon him. Uh, people are accusing him of being a, a heretic, an apostate, a defiler of the temple, a, a causer of trouble, all of these different things. And the mob ends up trying to uh, institute mob justice. They take Paul, throw him out of the temple grounds, uh, and uh, start beating him. Start uh, Basically, they want to kill him. And anyway, the Romans have uh, stepped in. They, they had uh, premises not too far from there. And so the Romans stepped in and rescued Paul from the, the Jews that were trying to kill him. And as they were uh, leading him away, he asked them for the opportunity to address the people who were just beating him. And we talked about that last week. And if if you were in the place that you got to address the people who have just been beating you while you are in the safety of the Romans, how would you respond? What would be the things that you would say to these people who have just mistreated you? Well, we would probably have some choice words for them, and they wouldn't be nice. 
But what Paul ends up doing is, uh, first of all, he surprises the Roman because the Roman thinks that he is some uh, some criminal, that he is some rebel rouser, if you will, that is just trying to make trouble. And whenever he is able to speak Greek, which was a, a scholarly language, whenever he presented himself well, whenever he uh, spoke with uh, with respect and uh, and spoke in an honorable way, it caught this uh, it caught this Roman official's uh, attention. And so he permits him to speak to the people uh, that have just beaten him. And we find that in chapter number 22, Paul is addressing this group, and he begins by saying, uh, he, he begins by calling them men, brother, and fathers, hear you my defense. And so he's speaking to the people in the crowd uh, with respect, and they are surprised to hear him speaking their language, to hear him speaking respectfully to them because they just thought that he was a troublemaker. They figured that he was someone who hated the Jews, and now he is speaking their language and speaking respectfully to them. And so they begin to listen to him, and Paul uses this opportunity, instead of trying to clear his name, instead of uh, accusing those who have abused him, instead of browbeating them for their treatment of him, or of trying to get the Romans on his side, or whatever else he could have done there. Instead, he uses this opportunity to share his testimony and share the gospel with them. And what he begins doing, he begins by building a bridge to them. He says, I used to believe exactly as you do. I used to be one that would have been in this very same crowd, uh, raising up the very same accusations that you are, trying to uh, abuse those who believe what I believe. He said, I used to be that guy. And as a matter of fact, you can ask any of these uh, religious leaders, the priests and different ones, I used to run with them. I used to be a part of what they are doing. That would have been a surprise to them because what the accusations was is that Paul hated the Jews and he was trying to tear down their religion. And he says, I am very much a Jew and a part of what you are doing. I'm very aware of this and known of all of these people. But he says, there has been something that's changed my life. There's been something that changed my direction. I had a run-in with the God of heaven. I had a run-in with Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road, and it changed me completely. And those that I once persecuted and abused, now I love, and I, I uh, go out and serve the God that I once, or the Jesus that I once rejected. Yeah. And so he tells them, I used to be where you are, I met the Lord, and the Lord changed. He transformed me, gave me a different desire. He gave me a different occupation, sent me in a different direction. And then he goes even further, and he says, as far as the occupation that he was given, the Lord revealed to him, your testimony is not going to be accepted amongst the Jews, and it's not going to be accepted here in Jerusalem. And so I'm going to send you far hence from here to the Gentiles. And they have listened to him up to this point. They have heard him up to this point. But as soon as he mentions the Gentiles, they are enraged again. The mob is whipped up into uh, a riot once again because the Jews hated the Gentiles. And they knew that Paul had went and had been living amongst the Gentiles and had been ministering amongst the Gentiles and had been serving the Gentiles. And so for him to come here to Jerusalem he is as an apostate. He is as a, uh, a what's the word I'm looking for? 
What is it? Okay. So he is he's being seen as being a traitor. That's the word I was looking for. He's being seen as a traitor to his people because the Jews believe that they were a special people, that they were God's favorite people. God loved the Jews and hated the Gentiles. And so they felt as if it was right for them to hate the Gentiles. And whenever Paul is teaching and preaching and saying, no, God does not hate the Gentiles, they are pretty upset about this. Mm -hmm. And so he is attacking really the very basis of the corruption of the faith. Because God had chosen the Jews to represent him to the Gentiles, which is what Paul was doing. And the Jews weren't doing that. And so anyway, whenever he uh, said, I will, that the Lord told him, depart, I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. They said, away from, away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. Because he cares about the Gentiles and wants to take the good news of Christ, the Messiah, the one that the, the Jews acknowledged and knew that uh, the Messiah would come, they didn't acknowledge Christ, but that he would take this good news, that he would go and seek the welfare of the Gentiles, meant to this crowd that Paul was worthy to die, that he wasn't fit to live, that he was such a horrible person because he cared for the welfare of the Gentiles. He was such a horrible person, he deserved to die. That's pretty messed up, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And so if we would think about this for just a moment, in our modern culture, in the modern way that things go, if we look at religion today, we can make comparisons, we can draw uh, comparisons between uh, the examples in Scripture and the practice of religion today. Can you all see that? And so if you look at a lot of religions, if you look at a lot of so-called Christians, they are going to more closely align with the scribes and the Pharisees than they do with Paul. Mm -hmm. They're going to be more known for the things that they hate than for the God that they love. Their attitude toward those who are without, those who don't believe, those who are of other religions is going to be one of judgment and one of condemnation and one of ridicule. And if you dare to associate, if you dare to seek the welfare of those who are not like them, they are going to see you as an apostate and as someone who is not worthy of their fellowship. And they may even be to the place where they don't see you as worthy of even living. And so I've seen, I've seen this uh, saying, I guess, a lot on the Internet. But if your religion causes you to hate anyone, you're doing it wrong. Okay. And so this is what was going on with the Jews, is they said, he loves people that we hate. He ministers in ways that we don't approve of. He believes things that we don't believe, so he needs to die. And that's messed up, right? And so the example that Jesus has left for us is to be witnesses into all the world, to preach the gospel to every creature. The idea of preaching the gospel to every creature means that we are seeking their good. We are seeking their salvation. We want to see them know the Lord that we know and go to the uh, go to heaven where we're going. That should be our desire for every person on the earth. And we can't actively engage in that mission. We can't do what God has left us here to do if there is anyone that we hate and that we refuse, and that we want to see judgment come upon. 
And if we treat people in such a way that is going to alienate them from the gospel to where they're not going to want to hear us, they're not going to want to listen, if it's going to cause them to resist us, then we are not going to be able to minister to them. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to be wishy-washy about what we believe. It doesn't mean that we need to compromise the things that the Bible says, but the Bible does tell us that we are to speak the truth in love. Sometimes the truth will offend people. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Paul speaking the truth offended people and got him beaten and got him uh, mistreated and got him imprisoned because of it, right? But it was because he was speaking the truth, not because he was spewing out his own views, his ideologies, or his hatred. And so that brings us to uh, where we're at today in verse number 25. Uh, The multitude had set away with him. They cried out against him. Uh, He had to be carried into uh, the Roman fortress there to save him from the Jews. And so we come down to verse 25, and it says, And as they bound him with uh, thongs, Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the chief captain, saying, Take heed what thou doest, for this man is a Roman. Then the chief captain came and said unto him, Tell me, art thou a Roman? He said, Yea. And the chief captain answered, With a great sum obtained I this freedom. And Paul said, But I was free born. Then straightway they departed from him, which should have examined him, and the chief captain also was afraid, after he knew that he was a Roman, and because he had bound him. On the morrow, because he would have known the certainty, wherefore uh, he was accused of the Jews, he loosed him from his bands and commanded the chief priests and all their counsel to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. And so this is an interesting passage for me. Okay, We are looking at this and we are seeing uh, how we act as Christians whenever we are under examination. We are seeing how we act as Christians whenever we are mistreated, whenever uh, we are not seen favorably under the law. This is something that's going to become more and more a reality if the Lord tarries his coming. It's going to become more and more a reality as Christianity becomes less and less popular and as the world gets more and more anti-God. Okay, We have experienced great freedom, great liberty uh, in the West and with Europe and the United States and things. We've seen great freedoms as Christians, and we haven't had to uh, fear persecution or fear for our lives or imprisonment for our faith, but those days may, may be coming to an end. And so whenever we have uh, fallen out of favor with the world, and whenever Christianity becomes something that is not approved of or allowed, how is it that we are going to respond to this? And we're already seeing some of these things come up, but I think a lot of times we as Christians— or some people as Christians, maybe I shouldn't say we, some people as Christians make issues where there isn't an issue, or they push the envelope, or they try to force things whenever in reality they need to keep their heads down and keep just serving God. They become politically motivated instead of spiritually motivated. Their priority is comfort and power and politics rather than the gospel and serving the Lord. Okay? And so whenever we see Paul here, he has taken his opportunity, he has stood before the people, and he shared the love of Christ with them. He has, um, he has operated in self-control. He has 
uh, went through all of these things with a, a clear mind, with a, uh, a laser-like focus, if you will, on what he's wanting to accomplish. He's not whipping up the people into a frenzy, or at least not yet. He will in a minute. But he's not trying to uh, trying to force his rights. He's not going out and protesting. He's not trying to show all, you know, appearing on all of the the uh, news stations and, and all the write-ups on the newspapers and everything about how he has been abused and mistreated and how he has rights. But instead, he is submitting himself to the process and he is allowing these things to happen for the glory of God and for the cause of Christ. And so what we find in this passage I just read is that uh, the captain, verse 24, I didn't read it, but the captain commanded him to be brought in the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging and that they might know whereof he cried so against him. Now, it would have been good if they would have just asked him, what's this all about? They, just, they don't do that. Instead, they say, we're going to examine him by scourging. In other words, we're going to beat him till he talks. That's pretty rough, isn't it? And this isn't, you know, a normal caning or normal uh, type of corporal punishment. This is the scourging like Jesus got before he went to the cross. This is being beat with a flagellant and with a whip with a cat of nine tails to where your flesh is torn, where you're bloody and battered, and it is a horrible way uh, to be treated. And so anyway, the captain gives the orders. He says, Paul is going to be examined by scourging. They bind him, and what they would probably do is bind him to some sort of a pillar with his back stretched where they could beat him or these arms stretched up in the air to where those muscles are going to be that much more tender. It's going to be more painful. And so Paul is already bound in this position, whichever one it is. He's already bound in this position, and he speaks up. And he says, is it lawful for you to bind and beat a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? This is new uh, information for his captors, okay? <laughs> Paul hasn't spoke up. He hasn't asserted his rights. But whenever he is getting ready to be beaten, whenever he's getting ready to be abused contrary to the law, he does assert his rights. He does appeal to the law. And for us as Christians, we have certain legal protections. We have certain things that we uh, we can uphold in courts whenever it comes down to that. But we have avenues which we can uh, which we can go through rather than trying to cause a stir to to make a big stink about things. Okay? And so Paul says, I am a Roman, I am uncondemned, and yet you're going to beat me. And the reason that this brings a lot of attention up, this is the reason it gets uh, his captor's attention, is that the Roman government uh, had certain rights that were afforded to Roman citizens. If you were a Roman citizen, you had extra rights, you had extra protections that other people didn't. If you just think for a minute about how the Roman uh, the Roman Empire worked, uh, Rome had beat the previous uh, excuse me Rome had beat the previous empire. You know the Greeks beat the Babylonian or the the Persians. Excuse me, which Babylonians? But anyway, the the Greeks beat the Persians, and the Romans beat the Greeks. And each time they would take over the territory. And so you'd have a central government, you would have outposts throughout, but you would have many different countries and tribes and peoples who were under the authority of the Roman government. Mm -hmm. Okay? And so all of these captured countries, all of these countries that had been 
defeated and occupied and controlled by the Romans were full of people who were not Romans. And so you would have the Greeks and you would have uh, the Jews and you'd have all these different nationalities that were non-Romans. And there was a hierarchy, if you will. There was a caste system within Roman lifestyle. And so you would have the non-Romans and what we're going to see here in a minute, Romans who had bought their citizenship and then those who were citizens by birth. Mm-hmm. You'd have almost a tiered system in this. Yeah. And they say that about half of the Roman Empire at that time would have been slaves. And so that brings another aspect into it. And so whenever this uh, Roman soldier, this Roman official, is looking at Paul, Paul is an older man at this time. He has seen some battles. He was scarred. He probably wasn't much to look at. He had spent a lot of time traveling, and the 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 mileage was showing, if you put it that way. Okay? <laughs> yeah. And on top of that, whenever the Romans took him into custody, he had just been beat. They were trying to beat him to death, so he was bloody. He had been probably wallowed on the ground, and he had... Uh, all these different things going on. And so the Romans looking at him said, this guy isn't much. He's just a run-of-the-mill criminal. He's just some poor guy. He's not any anyone wealthy. He's not anyone who has any connections or any power or anything like that. So the Roman official is looking at him just like he is some worthless slave on their caste system. And so they can treat him. They can abuse him. They can do whatever they want to to him, and there will be no consequence. But whenever Paul speaks up and he says, I am a Roman citizen, they say, oh, no. Because if they have beaten a man without any offense, see, they don't even have a charge against Paul right now. They don't even know why they have him in custody, why they have him arrested. And so if they have put him in bonds, if they have handcuffed him, if you will, and he has broken no laws... And on top of that, now they're going to start meeting out punishment whenever he has never even had a trial or been convicted. These men have just endangered their own lives. Because for these Roman officials to mistreat a Roman citizen this way, they have now broken the law and they are subject to punishments, which could be their own lives. They could have to be killed because they have done this to a Roman citizen. And so now they are going to back down. Now they are going to change their tune about Paul and their treatment of Paul. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? And so now, in a way, Paul has the upper hand because if Paul goes through his legal means, uh, goes through legal means of redress because of the way that he's been treated, these guys could be the ones that are uh, in chains and in handcuffs. And so they're like, okay, we messed up. Now how do we, how do we uh, handle this so that we don't come to harm ourselves. Now, the best way would have been for them to release Paul, but if they release Paul, then the Jews are going to revolt. The Jews revolt. They failed to keep the peace. They're still in trouble. I wouldn't like to be a Roman official, especially not in Israel, okay? Because this was a difficult political game that they had to play. They had to constantly be measuring out and weighing things through and trying to figure out how to basically step around all of the landmines of the politics of that area, okay? And so whenever uh, Paul was getting ready to be bound, it wasn't until they were getting ready to abuse him, imprison him, beat him, all of these things, 
He says, hold on for a minute. I have protections as a Roman. You need to do this legally. We need to go through the legal means, the legal avenues to address this issue. So they unbind him. They don't beat him. And they start treating him very well so that he doesn't uh, bring accusations against them. And so they keep him in custody overnight, but he's not bound. And the next morning, it says that they uh, call for the, the Sanhedrin, basically, to meet together so that they can find out what's going on with Paul. Now, something I, I skipped over here that was interesting as well is the captain comes to Paul and he says, in verse 27, tell me, art thou a Roman? And he said, yea. And the chief captain answered, with a great sum obtained I this freedom. And Paul said, but I was freeborn. We get a little bit of a, a peek into the way that this Roman official was thinking. As I said there a minute ago, Paul wouldn't have been much to look at. He definitely didn't look like he was wealthy or well-connected, being the beaten, bloody lump of meat that he was, right? And so this man looked at Paul, and he says, there's no way that he can be a Roman. He's a Jew. Jews weren't typically Romans. And he's not wealthy. He couldn't have bought his citizenship. And so he says, tell me, are you a Roman? And Paul says, yes, I am. And he says, how can you be? It cost me a, a fortune to become a Roman. And Paul says, I didn't have to pay anything. My father was a Roman, and I ended up inheriting my citizenship from him. And so the Roman says, okay, I'm first-generation Roman. He's at least second-generation Roman. I'm in trouble. And so we see there's a difference in how the captors treat him. And I think that it is based more on Paul's behavior than it is on his citizenship. Okay, We've already seen back at the end of chapter number 21 that whenever Paul spoke respectfully to his captors, whenever he asked for permission to speak, whenever he conducted himself well, whenever he behaved himself wisely, that there was a change in the way that the Romans treated him. And now as Paul is still behaving himself wisely. He's still uh, speaking with respect. He's not lashing out. He's not making demands. He's not uh, making threats against them. They begin treating him much better. Some of it's fear, some of it's respect. And sometimes those two can be uh, confused with one another. And so anyway, where I was getting to, verse number 30, tomorrow he's going to know of more certainty whereof the Jews had accused him. They loose his bands bring him before the council, that would be the Sanhedrin, and they set him down before him. So let me paint a picture for just a minute. The Romans still have no clue what Paul did. They don't know why the, the Jews are so mad at him, why they want him dead. And nothing that's happened so far has clarified it. And so they say, okay, Paul, we're going to convene the, the Jewish council. And so the Romans send a message to the high priest and say, hey, Get your boys in order. We're going to send Paul down and allow you guys to put on your own little trial because they did acknowledge the Jews' government. They kept them under control, but the Jews were able to govern minor matters, civil matters and things. And so he says, convene your, your little Sanhedrin, your little council. We're going to send Paul down. And so Paul's there, the Sanhedrin's gathered, and Paul's set before them. The Romans have uh, went back to the... Uh, to the background, if you will. I can imagine, and this, this may be completely wrong in how it would have been, but I can imagine there being like a balcony and the Romans are looking down and observing the goings-on of this court. 
Okay, they might just be standing in the background. They may be up on a balcony overlooking it, but they are watching and they're just allowing the Jews to do their thing. And so as Paul comes down before this council that was hurriedly put together, he has the opportunity to speak to them and for them to work these things out. And the Romans are going to observe. And their hope from this observation is that they're going to have an understanding about what this is all about. If they can look on this interaction between Paul and the council, between Paul and the Sanhedrin, they're going to be able to figure out, okay, either this man is a troublemaker, maybe he's going to show his true colors whenever he is standing before these people, or whatever. They're going to figure out who's at fault through this council, which it doesn't go that way whatsoever. Now, I will say that the the Romans were very familiar with the high priest, with the Sanhedrin, with the the Jewish government. They knew that they were corrupt. They knew that they were hard to get along with. And so they were taking it all with a grain of salt. They didn't have a whole lot of respect for that government. But whenever we come down to chapter 23, Paul gets his opportunity to speak. And chapter 23, verse 1, and Paul earnestly beholding the council. So this is the Jewish religious leaders, okay? And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God unto this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. He's not off to a good start, right? So put yourself in the Romans' position. They are looking on on this. Paul stands up before the council, and he says, I have lived with a clear conscience up to this point. They're making accusations. They're telling him that he is wicked, that he's an apostate, that uh, he is uh, going against God, that he deserves to die. And the first thing that Paul says is, I have lived with a clear conscience. And Paul meant it. Okay? He wasn't just trying to stir up things, but their response shows a lot about them. See, Paul could have a clear conscience because he was washed in the blood of Jesus, because he was saved, his sins were forgiven, right? All of the things that he had done prior were taken care of, and so he could have a clear conscience before God. And then, even after his salvation, he still wasn't a perfect man, he still sinned, he still messed up, but he was striving his best to live before God in a way that pleased God. He was trying to be a good Christian, and he had done his very best in living for God. And so he says, I stand before you today with a clear conscience. And that should be our desire. Each and every one of us as a Christian, we should want to live before God with a clear conscience. We should be living our lives in a way that we believe pleases God. We should be living our lives in a way that we are seeking to be the best Christian we can be. We're going to fail. We're going to be messing up from time to time. But we know that God loves us. We know that he forgives us. And we just continue walking with him. We can live with God in a clear conscience, right? But whenever we look at the people that Paul is addressing, they have no clue about any of this because they are corrupt. They are conniving. They are liars. They are covetous. Really, they trample the Ten Commandments underfoot, let alone the rest of the law. And so whenever Paul says, I have a clear conscience, there isn't one of those men on that council that had a clear conscience. Because they are constantly living contrary to the things of God. Unless they are just completely narcissistic and deluded, there's not one of these men who can say, my conscience is clear before God. 
And so for this man who they think is a heretic and who they think is uh, such a horrible person, for him to say, my conscience is clear whenever none of theirs is, it's offensive to them. And so Ananias, the high priest, uh, gives a motion or he gives a command. I don't know what it was. But one of his henchmen, if you will, one of his lackeys, uh, turns around to Paul and just probably backhands him across the face. And Paul, at this moment, we see that he, he lashes out in anger. Paul's a human being. And think about the way that he's been treated. He has been falsely accused. He has been beaten. He has been chained. He has been threatened with uh, great torture and abuse. And all of these things just simply for him doing good, for him doing right. And so he's been subject to all this abuse already, and he has done nothing wrong. And then he just speaks, he tells the truth. He says, I have a clear conscience before God. And this guy just whacks him across the face. And so Paul uh, responds in verse number three, then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. For sittest thou to judge me after the law and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law? Paul looks at this guy and he says, you're a hypocrite and God's going to judge you. And he is right. Now, Paul, he does lash out in anger, but I think we could say that it's righteous indignation, right? But still, he's a human being. He's not going to be perfect. And so he actually, he advocates, he petitions, if we will, uh, to God for God to judge him. For God to avenge him. The Lord said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, right? And so he says, God will smite you. God will vindicate me. God will uh, give you what you have coming for the way that you've treated me. Now, if we would keep that in mind in the times that we are abused and the times that we are mistreated and the times when we are slandered, and we would realize that God is in our corner, that God's got our back, that we don't have to worry about it, and we can just go ahead and lay our heads down peacefully at night and sleep knowing that God will take care of those who have mistreated us, we'd be much better off. We spend much too much time uh, dwelling on the abuses and on the mistreatments and trying to figure out ways to clear our names or to get back at those who have done us wrong. We spend much too much time in bitterness not realizing we serve a great God who loves us and will take care of us, Okay even uh, avenging us for the wrongs that's been done. And if it's not now, they will give an account of it when they stand before him one of these days. Every time that they have abused, every time that they have mistreated, every time that they have hurt one of God's children, God's going to say, this was my child and this is what you've done. Right? And so we can comfort ourselves by these things, knowing God is in control. He is aware of everything that's going on. And so whenever Paul says, God will smite you, Paul isn't looking for a way to set the record clear. He's not looking for a way to get back at this guy. He is resting in the fact that God is going to take care of this. When he calls him a, a whited wall, what he's referring to is the, the act of whitewashing things. If you've ever uh, rented a house that they had just recently went through and done a uh, landlord remodel. You know, the previous tenant moved out and they came and slapped a new coat of paint on everything and called it done. And a little bit later, the smells and the stains start coming back out and you realize that they just made it look clean. They made it look new, but they 
hiding behind all that coat of paint was all kinds of problems and filth. Right? That's basically what Paul's accusing him of. He's a whitewashed wall. They have covered up all of the wickedness that's behind it by making the outside of it look good. Okay, there's another time where the term is a whited sepulcher. What's inside is a grave. It is dead men's bones. And the outside looks pretty. Okay? And so Paul says you are setting up there in your, uh, in your robes and in your uh, priestly garb. You are in this position as a judge. You look the part, but God knows what's inside, and God is going to judge you. And he brings out a, an accurate charge against him. He says, you are sitting here to judge me out of the very law that you are breaking. That's messed up, isn't it? But if we continue on this, verse number three, after he says this, verse four, and they that stood by said, revilest thou God's high priest? He says, how dare you speak to the man of God this way, right? Then said Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. This is interesting to me as well, because Paul is setting before an abusive and a hypocritical and an unjust leader. Okay, but whenever he is told that this man is the high priest, he apologizes. Everything that Paul said is correct. And Paul was right in having these feelings. But he said, I didn't know that this was the high priest. And God's word says that I'm not to speak evil against the ruler of my people. This is a hard one, especially in the day and age that we live in, where criticism of public officials and authority is so rampant, so easy. But if we look, if we look at Paul at this time, Paul has been away from Jerusalem for a good amount of time. He's been on his three missionary journeys. He has spent many years out of Jerusalem, out of that political atmosphere, out of that culture, and ministering amongst the Gentiles. And during that time, one of the Herods appointed uh, Ananias as the priest. So Ananias, being the high priest, he was a political appointee. This wasn't a spiritual position anymore. It was now a political position. And Ananias was known to be ruthless, to be without any kind of uh, any kind of what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> yeah, and so he was he was ruthless. He was immoral. He had uh, no type of integrity. That's what I was looking for. He had no type of integrity whatsoever. He was there as a political hack. And Paul, being gone for so long, would not have known this man by his face. He may have heard the name. He may have known that he was high priest. He might have known the story behind it. But whenever Paul laid eyes on this man, he didn't realize this was the high priest. He was speaking the truth here. And on top of that, the Sanhedrin was brought together so quickly at the order of the Romans, maybe this man hadn't got to put on all of his high priestly garb. You know, he would have all of these clothes that make him look like royalty, Right. And so as he's sitting there as a judge presiding over this, Paul doesn't realize this man is a high priest, and he uh, rebukes him in this way, and then whenever he realizes it is the high priest, he says, I didn't know 
And God's word tells me that I am not to speak evil of the leaders of my people. Okay? And so he apologizes for this, even though this man is wicked. See, we have the idea that if a man is unjust, if a, an authority is wrong, if an authority is wicked or abusive, then we don't have to pay any respect. We don't have to honor. We don't have to do anything toward that. And so we complain about our government officials. We uh, gripe about our boss at work. We uh, criticize all these different ones around us because we are serving people who are flawed, who sometimes are even wicked, right? But the principle that Paul puts forth here and that the Word of God puts forth is it's not that we are respecting the man, but we are respecting the position. We are respecting the authority that he has. The Bible says that there is no authority except that which is ordained of God. And so how we serve men, how we live our lives in honoring and obeying and respecting those who are given authority over us is a reflection of how we serve our God. Now, it doesn't mean that whenever, they, uh, whenever the laws or the commands or whatever is contrary to God's word that we obey it rather than God, but that's generally not going to be the case. And so for us as Christians, even whenever we are marginalized, even whenever we are abused, even whenever we are mistreated, we still conduct ourselves with integrity. We still conduct ourselves with, um, with self-control. And we give deference to those, even those who are in the wrong, because it says more about us and our God than it does about them. And so if we feel like we're justified in attacking, abusing, spewing all kinds of hate and vitriol against these people who are wicked or who are corrupt, then we are just lowering ourselves to their level. We are losing our leverage, if you will, with them. We are losing our reputation and we are losing our ability to be a witness and a testimony. Because here's the thing, the way that we live, the way that we conduct ourselves determines the amount of influence that we're going to be able to have around us. And whenever we conduct ourselves differently than this world, whenever we are attacked and we don't attack back, whenever we are disrespected, but we still show respect, the world takes notice and they say, wait a second, there's something different about this guy. Okay? So now put yourself in the position of the Romans again. Okay? The Romans are watching all of this unfold. The Romans are seeing this interaction. And Paul speaks something that should not have been offensive. He gets hit. And then whenever they say, hey, this was the high priest, he backs down. He apologizes and says, I'm going to show respect to the position, not to the man. And the Romans are like, man, this is wild. I've never heard a man speak like this. I've never heard a man go through such abuse and still be respectful, still hold it together to exercise the extent of self-control that he has. Even whenever Paul lashed out and says, thou whited wall, God will smite thee, the Romans are like cheering him. He's like, yeah, they deserve this and then some. And then whenever he comes back and he's like, no, I'm going to operate with decorum. I'm going to operate with respect. The Romans are just like, oh, this is... This is wild. This is crazy that Paul is acting in such a way. And so that brings us to uh, kind of the funny part of all of this. 
Paul knows that he is at a huge disadvantage here. He knows that every single person in this council is against him. Basically, he's playing with a stacked deck, if you all understand that, that idiom. Okay? And so he knows he's playing with a stacked deck. They are prejudiced against him. They've already determined that he should die. He is not going to get anywhere in this. And so he quickly sizes up the room and he makes a decision. And now there is differing opinions on what Paul does here. There are some that point out it seems that Paul has a little bit of um, regret that he does this. Okay? Later on, he says, uh, whenever he's giving an account of what he did, he says, I didn't do anything except for this. It seems almost he may have had regret. I don't know. But we also find that the, the Lord tells his disciples that whenever they are before dignitaries, when they're before magistrates, whenever they are arrested and things, to give no thought what they're going to say before the time that God will give them the words that they need to say. And that seems to me almost like what's going on here, that God is guiding Paul. He's giving him wisdom. He's giving him direction in how to answer these people to get him where he needs to go, okay? Because God isn't guiding Paul to release. He's not guiding him to have all of the charges dropped. He's not guiding him to get out of the situation. He's guiding him to Rome, right? And so in Acts 23 here, down at about verse number six, it says, but when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope of the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. So just a little bit of a background on what this means. The scribes and the Pharisees, or not the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were two different religious groups within the Jews. Basically, it was the liberals versus the conservatives. Okay, The Pharisees believed in the miracles. They believed in the angels. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in the supernatural. The Sadducees, they were the liberals. They didn't believe in miraculous things. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in a resurrection. And they took the word of God as being more uh, uh, allegorical or being just guides in how to live this life and things like that rather than it being interpreted literal. And so you have kind of the same thing going on today. You have the liberals and the conservatives, right? And so Paul looked out over them and he said, I'm a Pharisee. He cited, he aligned with one side of it. He doesn't bring out anything about him being a Christian. He says, I am a Pharisee, and I'm here because of the hope of the resurrection. That was not a lie. His hope of the resurrection was that Jesus resurrected, that Jesus rose from the dead and paid for the sins of all men, and that one day Paul is going to resurrect. So Paul says, I believe in the resurrection, specifically the resurrection of Jesus, but he doesn't throw that in there. And he says, because of this hope, because of my belief as a Pharisee, that's why I'm here today. And this is funny to me because he knew just what to say to take the heat off of himself and make them fight with each other. Because there was no way he was going to win, so let them fight with each other. And so Paul can stand here calm, cool, collected, put out something that is not going to be offensive to the Romans, right? But it's going to set off the Jews, and Paul is going to be the one that's just an innocent bystander while these guys are going nuts. And how's that going to look to the Romans? 
And so whenever he says this, verse 7, And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He turns his enemies against each other. Now, God does this several times in the Old Testament. Whenever there are people and groups that are coming against the Jews, and whenever they're going to attack the Jews, he stirs up the armies, and the armies attack each other, and the Jews get out of it, right? So this is an Old Testament tactic that Paul is using in the New Testament in a smaller scale. Okay? And so there was a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say there is neither resurrection or angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel hath spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest they should have been, or fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down among them and bring him into the castle. I would like to see this one of these days. If there, I, I refer to this often. If God can like have this on DVD or whatever one of these days, maybe we'll have Netflix in heaven and we can replay some of these things that's going on. I would like to see all this go, you know, in person, I guess. Because Paul says, of the hope of the resurrection am I called here before you today. And all of those of the Pharisees says, I see no fault in him. Maybe an angel, maybe God spoke to him because now it became a political issue. And the Sadducees start crying, oh no, he's still a heretic, he's still an awful person. And they start fighting with each other, and they basically use Paul as a rope for a human tug of war. He's in the midst of them, and they're grabbing him, one side's pulling him one way, one side's pulling them the other way, and the Roman looks down and says, this is nuts. If we don't do something, they're going to pull him in two. They're going to dislocate his arm sockets, they're going to rip him in half. And so this whole proceeding is over with. The Romans go down and get him, haul him off to safety, and they're still scratching their heads saying, I have no clue what this is all about. And so every time that the Romans try to figure out why do the Jews hate this man so much, Paul gives them no reason to hate him. Paul isn't bringing accusations against his country. He's not bringing accusations against the Romans. He is simply behaving himself wisely. He is keeping himself together. He is uh, doing everything right, and the Jews can't stand it. But the Romans are in the bad position of playing the political game that they can't just let go of Paul because if they release Paul, the Jews will riot. And so Paul stays in prison. And so now put yourself in Paul's position. Paul has been beaten, manhandled, mistreated. They've tried to tear him apart multiple times. The Romans are just confused, trying to figure out what to do with him. His future is up in the air. And so he is still in prison. He's still in custody. No charges are against him. No clear pathway for his future. None of that. And so in verse number 11, as Paul is discouraged, as he's confused, as he's probably a little bit doubtful, as he's questioning everything that he's done so far, Verse 11 says, And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. And so what the Lord does to him, this is several times now that the Lord has come to him to reassure him. One time was whenever he was in 
Uh, I believe it was in Corinth. He said, uh, fear not to continue preaching, continue doing what you're doing because I have many people in this city. And Paul stayed there for a couple of years. Remember that? But whenever the Lord appears to him, he doesn't say fear not. He says, be of good cheer. That tells me Paul is discouraged. He's depressed. Right? And he's thinking through all the events that have came up to this point. And he's probably questioning, maybe I was wrong to do this. What is all of this accomplishing? And whenever the Lord comes to him, he says, you have testified of me in Jerusalem. Do you think any of the Sanhedrin, do you think any of the leaders of the people there would have listened to what any of the other Christians had to say or what Paul had to say in any other circumstance? You think James and the believers in Jerusalem are going to go out and try to win over the high priest, the corrupt high priest? Probably not. But Paul in Jerusalem has just got to testify. He has got to preach the gospel before not just the Jewish leaders, but also the Roman leaders in Jerusalem. And so he is preaching the gospel to those who are at the highest tier of society and politics. And God says, just the same way that you have been a witness of me as you've been able to testify of me here, you're also going to do it in Rome. And so God is just through the door wide open and he says, Paul, here's my plan for you. You haven't failed. You haven't messed up. This hasn't been in vain. I've got a plan. I've got a path. And you are going to continue proclaiming and testifying of me before people that no one else is going to have access to unless they're in your position. I've got you. I've got you under control. You are in my hand and you're going to go to Rome and you're going to testify to Caesar, the most powerful man in the world. Paul, I've got you marked for that job. That would be encouraging, right? And something else Paul knows at this point is he is basically invincible until God's done with him. There is nothing that man can do to him. He is not going to die until he finishes the course that God has set for him. As long as he is serving God, as long as he is putting God first, as long as he is doing the will and the purpose of God, he will continue doing that until he has accomplished it, until he has finished it. Okay? And so anyway, he has this new reassurance, and I'm going to have to wrap up for the sake of time. But in the rest of this chapter, what we find is that the Jews are so upset that they haven't gotten to kill Saul or to kill Paul that there are 40 men of the Jews who covenant together that they are not going to eat until Paul is dead. I wonder how that works for them. Okay, so they have bound themselves under a curse. We are going to kill Paul. And they go to the Jewish leaders and they say, if you will go to the Roman leaders and request another meeting with Paul, whenever they are bringing him, there will be a time of opportunity. We're going to attack and we are going to kill Paul. And the Jewish leaders, just to show how corrupt they are, they don't say, wait a minute, that's murder. Wait, that's wrong. We shouldn't be acting that way. They say, that's a good idea. Let's do it. And so that was their response to it. And so they covenant, covenanted together to kill Paul. But there is a problem with this. Because as they are secretly plotting, God has his people in place. And it just so happens that Paul's nephew, a little boy it seems like, is standing there and overhears it all. Now how in the world would that work out? 
They're plotting the death of Paul. They're plotting to go against the Romans, attack the Romans, overthrow their little battalion as they're bringing Paul in. They have this whole conspiracy going on. And there's a little boy just sitting here playing with these toys or something, listening to it all. And that little boy just happens to be Paul's nephew that likes Paul. And so he comes to Paul. Paul, having the freedoms that he does as a Roman citizen, is allowed visitors. And his nephew comes in and says, hey, Paul, you're never going to believe what I just heard. They're plotting your death. They're going to request that you come and testify again. And as you're coming, they're going to kill you. And Paul says, hey, go over and tell that to the captain. He's ushered into the presence of the captain of the guards. And the captain takes him by the hand, leads him out into a quiet place. And he says, okay, what do you have to tell me? And he listens to this guy. He listens to this kid. And Paul's word and this child's word now carries weight with this guy because he's been observing Paul. He's been observing the way that Paul's behaved, the way that Paul's acted. And so it carries weight with him. And so what the chief captain of the guards here does, what the chief captain of the guards here does is he arranges for basically an army to transport Paul out of there to where he's over in Caesarea in safety. And they transport him that night, some uh, 200 horsemen and all kinds of, I mean, an army to transport Paul and keep him safe, one prisoner. That's pretty incredible, right? And so the final thing that I want to bring out of this is just showing God's care and God's provision, the way that he can do things, because God can put the right person in the right place to hear the right thing, to bring about the right end in his plan. And none of these things were orchestrated by man. None of it was orchestrated by Paul or any of the Jews. God had it under control. And we don't understand how all of that works how God can have the right person in the right place at the right time like that. But that's not ours to figure out. That's God's. And so God puts this little boy just where he needs to be to hear these things, to tell this guy, has this guy's heart in the place to where he's going to listen and to respond. And Paul is kept in safety to go to Caesarea to meet with Felix and to testify to another leader of the people of Israel that Typically, no Christian is going to have access to outside of Paul's circumstances. And so even though Paul is going through difficult things, God is working a bigger plan. God is doing things that Paul couldn't have done on his own or without these circumstances, but that is the God that we serve. And it would be exciting to be involved in God's plan and God's doing of these things. But what it takes is us being willing to trust him and to serve him and to stay faithful no matter what the circumstances, knowing that he is working all things together for our good and for his glory. And so that's where Paul is at on this. So with that being said, I need to wrap it up. Does anyone have any uh, any questions or comments on what we've looked at today? I'm giving me a reason how to, to study more about Paul, I just discovered he had multiple nationalities. He was a, a, a Pharisee, he was a Roman, he was a Jew. He spoke many languages. Mm -hmm. He was, uh, I think he started under Jew law and all this thing. He was prosecuting people. 
and at the end he became Christian. All these things in one person. Mm -hmm. And uh, at his, uh, his argument here when he has to be prosecuted, all these things are coming up mm -hmm. in his own defense. Mm -hmm. So there's so much to, to study about mm -hmm. Paul. What much, maybe what is much that we didn't preach in the Bible about here. Right. Yeah. Well, and you bring up something very interesting there as well, that even in, in the days before he was saved in his life, uh, he was having all these different things in his life come together that fit him for God's plan after he was saved. And so it, it gave him the, the right learning. It gave him the right connections. It uh, gave him the languages that he needed to speak and the nationality, the national connections that he needed all of the things that happened to him throughout his life fit him for the place that God put him at. And so we can look back in regret or we can look back with disappointment at some of the things that's happened in our lives. Or we can look at it and say, God can take all of these things, fit it into his plan and use me exactly as I am. Mm -hmm. The things that we see as liabilities, God can use them instead for benefit. Right? What really struck me is that God stood by him, you know, mm -hmm. but even when he, when he got locked up, basically, he got pierced, and they, they hurt him, you still have to go to Rome, yeah. you know, yeah. yeah, and, and that contrasts a lot with something else that stands out to me in this, is that none of the Jew, none of the Jewish believers, none of the other Christians did stand by him, I mean, where's James at, where is, you know, all of the ones that came with him, they're not there, but God's with him. Yeah. Good stuff. Okay, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll take a break and get back into our uh, sermon series. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you so much for your blessings. We thank you for this time that we've had to be in your word, Lord, for the instruction and the encouragement we get from Paul. And Lord, we just thank you, Lord, for these things that are recorded for our benefit and for our instruction. And Lord, we just pray, ask you to be with our fellowship, our time together. Thank you for everyone who's gathered here today. And Lord, we just ask you, Lord, to help us, Lord, to uh, continue faithfully serving you and allow you to use us, Lord, allow you to guide and direct and to orchestrate our lives in a way that's going to bring about uh, your purposes. Lord, we thank you for all you do and all you're going to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.